The ancient Chinese believed that the heart was the center of human cognition, and therefore the heart and the mind are one. Wellness Continuing offers spiritual tools and resources to elevate your heart-mind. At wellnesscontinuing.com, you'll find meditation music with binaural beats, a podcast all about consciousness in the afterlife, blog posts, and a new series called Dreamtime with Catherine Clairvoyant and much more. Sign up for the Wellness Continuing newsletter and stay updated about new offerings and resources. Visit wellnesscontinuing.com. Wellness Continuing. Elevate your heart-mind. Welcome to Life Continuing, conversations that explore consciousness, healing, and infinite existence. I'm Tanya Berg. Jeffrey Mishlove, PhD, is host of the New Thinking Aloud channel on YouTube. He is author of The Roots of Consciousness, Psy Development Systems, and The PK Man. Between 1986 and 2002, he hosted and co-produced the original Thinking Aloud public television series. He's the recipient of the only doctoral diploma in parapsychology ever awarded by an accredited university. He is also the grand prize winner of the 2021 Bigelow Institute essay competition regarding the best evidence for survival of human consciousness after permanent bodily death. The Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies was founded in June 2020 by aerospace entrepreneur Robert T. Bigelow to support research into both the survival of consciousness after physical death and based on data from such studies, the nature of the afterlife. Dr. Mishlove and I discuss his winning essay and highlight the evidence for the survival of consciousness, as well as his interesting journey from criminology to parapsychology that started with a dream. Welcome, Dr. Mishlove. It's such an honor to have you here on the show today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And a big congratulations to you for winning the essay. So this contest is extremely important at this time. You've been interviewing experts and experiencers for many decades now about the subject of consciousness and survival. And there's so much research in the subject. In other words, it's nothing new. But our materialist society has kept it out of the mainstream. And so now here's this incredible essay that you've written citing so much evidence for the survival of consciousness and the paradigm shift of consciousness being fundamental. Let's start with the opening story of your essay, which involves a very personal experience involving your uncle. Well, it's an important story because it literally changed my life, Tanya. If you had known me when I was 25 years old, you would have seen a graduate student in criminology doing volunteer work at San Quentin Prison, conducting group therapy sessions with murderers and rapists. Uh, So imagine uh, what it was like for me in March of 1972 when I awakened from a dream, and this was a dream that was more real than real. I was crying tears of joy and singing simultaneously uh, one of the most sacred songs in uh, my own Jewish religious tradition. That 
is the moment that in a way created my destiny of talking to you today, right now. Uh, that's when my uncle Harry, my great uncle Harry, who was at the time, I think 84 years old, I was 25, came to me in a dream and began talking to me very deeply about my life at a soul to soul level. And after that, it was not possible for me to continue focusing on criminology, which, which my passion was human deviance, really. But I decided then and there, it's time to look at the positive side of human deviance, not the, not the negative. Uh, after having had, uh, well, I discovered, I, I wrote home to my parents. I, How's Uncle Harry? I had a dream about him. My mother called me immediately and said, how did you know that was the moment when Uncle Harry died? He was in Wisconsin in the morning. I was still in California two hours earlier for me. So I was just sort of waking up at the time of his death. And as a result of that, I made a decision that I had to switch somehow out of criminology into uh, the more positive side of human deviance. I wanted to look at intuition, creativity, and in particular to look at mysticism and parapsychology. I asked uh, my parents if they could arrange for me to have some object that belonged to Uncle Harry. And I was sent a book, a little book. Uh, it was in Yiddish, so it took me a while to get it translated. And it turned out that, and then I was told this was Uncle Harry's favorite book. It turned out it was a book of the tales of what is known in uh, Jewish tradition as the Baal Shem Tov, who was the founder of the Jewish uh, mystical Hasidic uh, tradition. Baal Shem Tov means the master of the good name. And uh, it was thought, in other words, th this was a man who could talk to God and God would listen. <laughs> so I, I understood then only after Uncle Harry's death that he was at heart a mystic. And he shared that with me at, at the moment of his death. So then I began a process um, which was very difficult to switch from criminology to some other field of study that would be appropriate for me. And you can study crime and psychopathology at almost every university, but if you want to study mysticism and parapsychology, it's much harder. And I anguished about this for months and months. And finally, if, if you don't mind, I'll go into another story. Please. I had a, another dream. And after many months of anguishing, um, I knew one day, I just knew tonight is I'm going to find an answer in a dream. I it was certain. I don't know why I was certain, but I was absolutely certain. And that evening, 
I think if I remember rightly, I even like swallowed a glass of water right before going to bed so that I would wake up in the middle of the night if I had a dream and I could write it down. And I did. I had a dream. I had and in my dream, I was visiting some friends across town in Berkeley, knocked on their door, married student housing, and nobody was home. In the dream, I found their key, let myself into their apartment, walked into the living room, and right in the middle of the living room floor was a magazine. In the dream, I picked it up, started paging through it. Uh, the dream magazine was named I, E-Y-E. And that's when I woke up with this feeling of exhilaration, like, whoa, this is it. I have the answer. But I didn't have a clue as to what it meant. So I did something very unusual. I acted out the dream. I put on my tennis shoes, ran across town five miles to this apartment in Berkeley, knocked on the door as I had dreamt nobody was home. And in fact, I did happen to know that they kept a key under the doormat. No. So I, I let myself in to their apartment, walked into the living room, smack dab in the middle of the living room floor, just as I had dreamt was a magazine. I picked it up. It was not called I, it was called Focus. And it, you could say that magazine brought focus into my life because it was the magazine of listener-sponsored radio and television in the San Francisco Bay Area, KQED. And I was paging through this magazine. And at that moment, it dawned on me for the very first time, I could pursue my interests by getting involved, just as you're doing right now, and what we'd have to call the nonprofit aspects of, of the media. Of course, it's expanded a great deal since 1972. Uh, which, but it was very unusual for me to have that thought because in those days, I was a long-haired hippie. I didn't own a radio or TV, and I didn't believe in them. I was convinced back then that the only authentic human interactions were face-to-face, -face, that everything electronic was phony. And I changed my mind right then and there. I went to the local Pacifica radio station in Berkeley, California, where I lived, a KPFA, and said, I'd like to volunteer. And they said, okay, even though I had a master's degree by then, they said, here, sit at this desk, and when you hear the doorbell ring, you push this buzzer to let people in the front door, which I gladly did. And, and that's what began my career in, uh, as an interviewer. I, I learned how to produce radio programs. My first program was called, um, You Don't Have to Be From Out of Town to Be Psychic. Because <laughs> I, I was interviewing my local friends who were having psychic experiences. The program director liked it so much that in, he said, we have a slot for you every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. We'd like you to host this one-hour interview program called The Mind's Ear. And so within three weeks, 
of joining KPFA, I had my own show. I was sitting across a table with world-class experts who came through the San Francisco Bay Area on their book tours, people like Robert Monroe, the author of Journeys Out of the Body. And that gave me the confidence to go back to the university and take advantage of a very obscure rule they had that fit my situation, which is if you're already a graduate student in good standing and you want to do a doctoral dissertation that no department will sponsor, but you can find three faculty members from different departments who are willing to sponsor you, you can create your own unique individual interdisciplinary doctoral program. So I did that in parapsychology. And uh, that program took me seven years from 1973 to 1980 to complete. That's phenomenal. What an amazing story. Wow. And, you know, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I have to make a comment quickly. In your conclusion, you had talked about um, postmortem survival being both normal and natural. Okay, we'll mm. talk about that again. But I wanted to point out that's something with my own personal experiences with consciousness that I came to the conclusion it's natural, but it's personal. And your example of how it changed your life is what I'm saying about it also being a personal experience and and something for inner growth. But we can get to that after. I just wanted to comment on that. That's a, an amazing story. So you uh, have a PhD in parapsychology, and that is a very rare credential now these days, or it was at the time as well. Well, now, to, to be clear, there are, I would say, several hundred people who have written doctoral dissertations on parapsychological topics. Okay. Uh, but what I think is unique, I believe I may be the only person in the world, and certainly the only person in the United States who has a doctoral diploma that actually says parapsychology on it. Right, wow, yeah. You mentioned in the essay, the white crow. If you can define what that means. William James, who was um, a wonderful uh, an inspiration to me, he is considered the father of American psychology, but he's also uh, one of the founders of the field of religious studies and uh, one of the founders of the discipline of psychical research, which sort of preceded parapsychology and considered one of America's greatest philosophers. Uh, he was very interested in life after death and he studied uh, a medium named Lenora Piper. And uh, she convinced him that she had paranormal abilities. So he, he coined the phrase, the white crow. He said, if you wanna prove, uh, or, or let me put it differently, if you want to disprove, the hypothesis that all crows are black, all you have to do is find one white crow. And uh, he said, for me, Mrs. Piper is my white crow. We have a lot of white crows in the field of consciousness and parapsychology. Yes, we do. I think I have about 25, 30 of them in my essay. Yes, you do. And one of them is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, which 
I just find her story so fascinating. It's interesting because there are a few cases where people's lives were literally changed by a contact with the afterlife. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was at a point in her career where she was doing seminars on death and dying, and she felt like they weren't going anywhere, and she was ready to give it up. She had already done some work in the area of near-death experience. She had had one of her patients, a woman named Mrs. Schwartz, who had a near-death experience and told her all about it. And then Mrs. Schwartz died. Some 10 months later, this is when Kubler-Ross is getting ready to just quit all of her work. And she's about to tell. Uh, she's at the University of Chicago. She's doing some work in conjunction with the priest. She's standing by the elevator, about to tell the priest, I'm going to quit. When all of a sudden, some lady appears and says, can I walk with you to your office? And they're walking down the hallway to the office. And then she realizes this is Mrs. Schwartz, the woman who died 10 months ago. And Mrs. Schwartz gets her in the office and says to her, you must not quit your work. Promise me you will continue. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross realized this is very unusual. <laughs> so in order to have some way of ascertaining that this is real, she said, would you mind writing a little note for me? She had this woman, and I don't know if it was a materialization, or apparently it was, or an apparition, write a note, sign her name. And Gula Ross promised she'll continue the work. And she wrote at that moment, I felt transfixed. It was as if she could read every thought in my mind. And she was looking at me with pure love. So Kubler-Ross promised, and then Mrs. Schwartz walked out of the office, and right away, Kubler-Ross realized, my gosh, what has just happened? She opened her office door, looked out the hallway, nobody was there. That, yeah, unbelievable stories. And I've heard this yeah. about materializations often, but mm -hmm. I mean, from a psychological perspective, and what the, maybe the skeptics would say, what, what would be the alternative explanation? Well, you could say it was a hallucination, but uh, in this case, Kubler-Ross had the note. Right. Yes. Can I get that in writing? <laughs> She's a smart lady. <laughs> yeah. And, wow. And she talked about it often in her lectures. Yes. So yes. That, that would be another example of how this kind of a communication can totally change a person's life. Now, Kubler-Ross became... I think Time Magazine uh, said she was one of the hundred most influential people of the 20th century. Yes. So, so that's what a difference it made. Let's talk about the skull experiments, because that was so key over the years yeah. and a long-running experiment with materializations and apports, et cetera. So let's talk about that a little bit. The skull group was... Uh, a small mediumistic circle that met in a, a little town in England called Skull. That's where the name comes from. 
uh, was founded by a fellow named Robin Foy, who had been active in spiritualist circles for a long time. And he, uh, it was an unusual group in the sense that they had two mediums who would meet, and Robin Foy and his wife would get together. They had many visitors over the years, and uh, they reported all sorts of phenomenon of a physical nature, uh, objects levitating. Uh, they had cameras in the room with many paranormal photographs being taken, apports, and even materialization, spirit materializations taking place. They were studied by members, senior members of the Society for Psychical Research in England. This is a society founded in 1882. William James, who I talked about earlier, was one of their presidents in, in their early years. A very distinguished society. And three of the members attended 25 of their seances over a two-year period. And these are people who were very accustomed to uh, all of the tricks that phony mediums will uh, use to promulgate fraud uh, be because it became popular uh, going back to the 19th century for uh, fraudulent mediums to make money by you know, you know entertaining people that way. And uh, all three of the members who attended these seances testified that uh, there was no way that these phenomena could have been produced fraudulently over a two-year period like that. It was just not possible. So uh, it stands as uh, one of the best cases. A very lengthy report uh, of it has been published in the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research. Um, it's still controversial because physical phenomena are so hard for people to accept. They seem so bizarre, and they are, to be frank, unusual. So that many people, if you haven't experienced it yourself, you simply refuse to believe it. And uh, so they ran into that. But as far as I'm concerned, the uh, reports are very meticulous. The phenomenon they uh, produced have been captured on audio and uh, videotape and uh, so on. They uh, held seances in multiple countries in front of multiple witnesses over and over and over again. Uh, I think that uh, the criticism of fraud will always be there because every time a medium produces physical phenomenon, some people simply say it has to be fraud and they don't want to look any further. But there's never been any actual evidence of fraud, direct right. evidence. The, the evidence is simply what you'd have to say circumstantial, meaning I don't believe it could possibly be real. Many the, the skeptics are basically reduced to saying it, it's impossible, therefore it must be fraud. And right. uh, from a scientific point of view, that's a pretty weak argument because we can't say with any certainty what is or is not impossible. That's right. Exactly. And that brings me to the topic of reincarnation, because there are some really compelling cases that 
talk about or, and point to uh, survival, especially in children? There are indeed the um, University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies, which is part of their School of Medicine, has been studying cases of the reincarnation type. That's what they're called. And they are almost exclusively limited to children. They have a database now of some 2,500 cases where children, are practically as soon as they can begin to speak, start talking about their memories of a previous lifetime. And in 1,700 of these cases, the researchers or the parents working with researchers have been able to take the information provided by the child and actually identify a village and a person associated with the previous lifetime. So um, when you look at all of that evidence taken together, it's, it's enormously strong. Uh, it doesn't mean that everybody reincarnates. We can't say that for sure. What we can say is we've got pretty good evidence that 1,700 people did. Yes, that's right. You state in your summary that the evidence is in the big picture. So reincarnation is a part of this big picture, along with the strong evidence from the various phenomena taken together that points us toward the evidence of the survival of consciousness. Yeah, there is evidence from reincarnation, from near-death experience, from what are called after-death communications, spontaneous communications received by people who typically uh, of departed loved ones. There's evidence from mental mediums and physical mediums. There's a phenomenon known as xenoglossy, which is people who can speak a language they never learned. There's something really interesting. Um, I call it the peak in Darien experiences. And these typically occur in near-death experiences or in deathbed visions. People who are dying report seeing uh, their deceased relatives on the other side waiting to greet them. Uh, but many times, the Pekindarian experience occurs when they see somebody who they think is still alive waiting to greet them. Well, what, that seems strange. Why would a living person be waiting to greet a person who is dying? But then it turns out they're actually dead. They didn't know about it. And some of these accounts go back to ancient times. You find accounts like this in Plato and in Pliny and uh, so we have thousands of years of reports of this sort. And you have to appreciate that all over the world, in every culture, in every religion, in every continent where there are human beings, there's a strong belief in the afterlife. Even in modern times, when culture is largely materialistic, in the United States, the belief in the afterlife has been consistently over 70% for uh, at least the last 70 years since they've been measuring it. So I think that belief, it's not just religious superstition. It's people know about these instances, the after-death communications, the near-death experiences, the children who remember past lives. There's uh, 
you know, researchers have accumulated thousands of case reports of this, but the culture as a whole is permeated by millions. That's right. And our mutual friend, Dan Drazen, who, where you refer to his uh, film, Calling Earth, in your essay, yes. he, he was on my show as well a while back, and he said something really clever, and he just said, we don't really know what's paranormal or versus normal because people don't really talk about their experiences openly. So it's really even hard to say if it's out of the ordinary or not. That's for sure. You know, every single parapsychologist I know, when we give public presentations, it's inevitable. People will come up to us and say, I want to tell you about my experience. And almost always they preface it by saying, I've never told anybody else before. Because people... In, in a materialistic culture, they're afraid to talk about it. They think if I tell people, they'll think I'm crazy. That's so right. They, they need to have a, a safe environment before they can even talk about it. And even in uh, religions, even religions that believe in the afterlife uh, don't want you to talk about it. I grew up in what is known as a conservative Jewish synagogue in the United States where, yes, you know, nominally Judaism, like every other religion, accepts a belief in the afterlife. But we were always told Judaism is a religion for the living, not the dead. So, you know, just put all thoughts of the afterlife out of your mind. Don't even concern yourself with it. And I think, yeah, and I'm, that that's common for different groups to believe that. But on mm -hmm. the other hand, it seems to be more apparent that the thoughts about an afterlife and uh, survival of consciousness seems to be very crucial in our well-being and our growth and our understanding and meaning of life. I couldn't agree with you more, Tanya. For example, if we don't understand the afterlife, we're, we're missing a very important piece of what normal human consciousness is all about. We think that consciousness is produced by the brain so that when the brain dies, there can no longer be any consciousness. But all of this massive literature concerning the afterlife suggests something very different than that. And science has yet to prove that the brain creates consciousness. It's uh, there is another theory. William James held it because he wanted to explain the afterlife. He said the brain is like a radio receiver picking up. Well, he didn't have radios at the time. He said it's more like a filter, filtering consciousness from a larger cosmic reservoir where consciousness exists. I think in philosophical terms, isn't that called a metaphysical idealism or ontological idealism? Well, yes, uh, it could be ontological idealism. That's the view that I favor. But in William James' day, you could also think of it as dualism. It might be that there is a, a, a spiritual world and a physical world. Idealism, uh, which is, I think, the um, most logical metaphysical interpretation would say that what we think of as the so-called physical world is actually a world of our perceptions. 
It's a world of consciousness. It's the mind comes first. You can't get beyond consciousness. Everything starts there. And as Max Planck, the founder of quantum physics once said, you, you, the physical world is created from consciousness, not the reverse. And that's mind-blowing just to think about. Yeah. Terminal lucidity. I know that you mentioned that as well, but I think you have a personal story around that. Well, yes, a, a couple of them, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, my mother uh, had Alzheimer's at the end of her life. And uh, when she was in her final illness in the hospital, uh, she, it wasn't so bad that she never recognized me. She always did recognize me, but she couldn't remember, you know, what she said sometimes 10 seconds ago. She'd repeat herself all the time. And my wife was with her in the hospital room at, at this time, very within a week of her death. And she sat up in the hospital bed and all of a sudden, she became completely lucid. She and my wife had a two-hour conversation in which they talked in great detail about her family, about her marriage, about her boyfriend she had at the time, about her uh, acting career. It was like she had a completely intact mind for that time, which suggests that, yeah, you, your brain may be damaged and you may have Alzheimer's, but consciousness resides at another level. And consciousness can sometimes, especially when the brain is, is so weak that it can no longer block the fullness of consciousness from coming through, because William James, he, he often called it a filter theory that we our normal consciousness is like this enlightened being the cosmic consciousness is our normal state, but it's very hard to earn a living and survive in the physical world if you're always in a state of cosmic consciousness. So the brain reduces it down to what we need for uh, the survival of our physical body. And But when the brain can no longer even function as a filter, then full consciousness can come back again. And so it happens very often with People who are brain damaged uh, right before their death, they all of a sudden become like they're fully normal selves again for a while. And in your conclusion and summary, I just want to maybe uh, say a quote, if you don't mind. Uh, you say one axiom derives from Hume's argument. You can uh, describe that in a moment, that human testimony can never suffice to prove a miracle. So in response, you, uh, Dr. Mishlov, you've pointed out that postmortem survival is both normal and natural from the vantage point of idealist metaphysics. Just to kind yes. of summarize what we just spoke about as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and another point um, to counter what Hume says, you can't ever rely on human testimony. William James, his very final essays were on what he called radical empiricism, in which uh, empiricism is the normal uh, approach to experimental science. It means that science has to be based on evidence we receive through the senses. And William James said, well, actually, evidence, the most direct experience, even 
more direct than the senses is consciousness itself. And empirical an empirical science must never admit anything that is not directly experienced, and it must never exclude anything that is directly experienced. So human testimony is perfectly relevant to every field of science. You can't do science without human testimony. The science comes from the human experience. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I did want to talk about one more thing about mental mediumship, because that's the most mm. popular in the media today. It's it's uh, people are far yeah. more accepting and open around it. Um, and an interesting field, too, is the forensic mediumship that uh, certain individuals offer to help police and investigators find missing people, et cetera, and solve murders. But they still get accused of fraud from time to time. That still is in our psyche, we still aren't 100% convinced that they're really connecting with people from the other There's a small group of people, maybe 25% of the population who are hardcore materialists. They are are often, you know, college sophomores. And and also the people who control academic funding. It's not an accident that I'm the only person who has a doctoral diploma that says parapsychology. It's because there's a huge social prejudice against it. And you can go on Wikipedia and read um, their official viewpoint that parapsychology is a pseudoscience. So, uh, you know, there are people who, who are determined and and I think they're well-meaning what they want to do is in in their words is uh, stamp out the rising tide of superstition that and so they think they're doing a good thing by suppressing all of this evidence they think it just leads to superstition and if we accept parapsychology the next thing you know we'll all become Nazis or 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 something like that Uh, But you need to be able to discern the difference between, you know, what really is true and what isn't, especially in in today's environment where every group is accusing every other group of of lying. (laughs) It's not just mediums any longer. It's, you know, the right wing says the left wing all lies. The left wing says the right wing all lies. And it's incumbent upon everybody, I think, in this day and age to develop a, the spiritual gift of discerning truth from fiction. Uh, it, it, it's not easy in today's day and age, but it's almost become a necessity for everybody. It certainly is. This brings me to my last point. I wanted to go back and talk about your show on YouTube. There's one delightful thing that you've been doing and experimenting with yourself is having interviews with yourself. Yeah. And I just think that's so delightful. What made well, you think you. of that? <laughs> I, I, you know, how did, did it come about? I guess it was just a creative impulse. It dawned on me that, you know, I technically it could be done. It wasn't too hard to do because I just have two cameras and I talk to one camera and then I turn around and talk to the other camera and I can adjust the lighting so that it looks like I'm wearing different clothing each time. And 
I tried it as an experiment and I discovered that uh, it enables me to bring things forth from within myself that uh, I didn't know that I had. It, you know, I realize I'm a pretty good interviewer and I'm a pretty good interviewee, but I can put the two together. <laughs> it's brilliant. And I really, I enjoy each episode that you do with your interviewing yourself. I just think it's great. And you are bringing about some areas of discovery within yourself, from yourself. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it's great fun for me. It's, it's creative. It's imaginative. And yes. I, I, I'm sure I'll keep doing more. In fact, the topic that we just addressed, the need for people to be able to discern the yes. difference between truth and falsehood, uh, I'm going to do a uh, one of my interviews with myself about that pretty soon. Well, I'm looking forward to that one, definitely. Well, and thank you for the plug. I hope that your listeners uh, will visit the New Thinking Aloud channel on YouTube. Definitely. New Thinking Aloud on YouTube. Make sure everybody subscribes. And um, you're on Instagram as well. So you do, you're on, you're active on social media channels to promote the show. Yeah. At Jeffrey Mishlove on Instagram and uh, New Thinking Aloud on YouTube. Dr. Mishlove, this is this is an amazing conversation. Congratulations again on the essay. I really hope this is a big turning point for this whole subject matter. You can read it on the BIC website. All the essays are published, and uh, it's a great read. And you just give amazing examples. You've really pulled it all together, and I'm really grateful for that because we need your expertise in this. You've been doing this for quite some time, and thank you for sharing that and, and providing us with this information. Well, thank you very much for the good work that you're doing, Tanya. And also, just let me say one last little thing. It, a lot, new Thinking Aloud is A-L-L-O-W-E-D. Okay. Not A-L-O-U-D. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good distinction. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's wonderful. Thank you again, Dr. Mishlove. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Life Continuing. A very special thanks to Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove. For more on Dr. Mishlove and to watch his show, please visit newthinkingaloud.com. The advisor to the show is Amanda Capito. The music for this podcast was composed by Richard Farron. I'm your host, Tanya Berg. Make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow on Instagram at Life Continuing Podcast. And visit wellnesscontinuing.com for spiritual tools and resources to elevate your heart-mind. Be sure to join me next time where we'll continue this conversation about life continuing.